Absence makes the heart grow fonder. That's one of our culture's most common cliches, but it isn't always true. The Scottish have a proverb, his absence is good company. (laughs) And the French also have a saying that reminds us of the benefits of someone being absent. The absent are always wrong. More seriously, having people we love who are absent from our lives can be a great source of pain, a great source of discouragement. Some absences we feel constantly and acutely, like a phantom limb. Some absences are temporary, like a family member serving abroad on a military deployment. Yet some absences are permanent. Do you lament anyone's absence from your life? Do you have any hope of reunion? One of the strange things about being a Christian is that the most important person in your life is someone who is absent. Not only that, but it's someone you've never even met face to face. It is so easy for all your problems to seem so close so suffocating and overwhelming, and for Jesus to seem so far away. It is so easy for your pain and trouble and doubt to overwhelm you because they're so real, and for Jesus to seem so imaginary. How can you find comfort in an absent Savior? That's a question Jesus' first disciples confronted, and it's the main question our passage for this morning addresses. If you're not already there, please turn to John chapter 14. It's on page 901 of the Pew Bibles. This morning we'll be covering verses 1 to 14 of John chapter 14. With this sermon, we're beginning a new series in John's gospel covering chapters 14 to 17, Lord willing, throughout the year. Uh, John's gospel is one of the four biographies of Jesus that were written within living memory of Jesus' lifetime by his disciples and their close associates. Now, those disciples were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So whether the gospels were written by an eyewitness like John's gospel or by one of their close associates, they record eyewitness memory of Jesus. The apostle John, who wrote this gospel, is called the beloved disciple throughout the gospel. The other day, my wife Kristen saw one of our church's sermon cards lying around our house. She looked at my sermon titles and then asked me, are those your sermon titles or the titles of a series of Christian romance novels? (laughs) How should I know? I've never read one. In any case, this section of John is often called Jesus' farewell discourse. He's saying goodbye to his disciples. He's addressing them privately in the upper room where they had the Last Supper on the night when he would be betrayed. He would be tried that night and crucified the next day. In chapter 13, just before our passage, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He predicted predicted that one of them would betray him. And then look at verse 33 of chapter 13. He said, Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. 
And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is going to leave them. He's now present. He will soon be absent. Not only that, but Jesus tells Peter, the boldest of the disciples, that he, Peter, is going to betray Jesus. Look at verse 38 of chapter 13. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. What's coming will shake the disciples to their core. Jesus is going to leave. And the manner of his leaving is going to be excruciating, both for him and for them. So in the next four chapters, he prepares them. He equips them. The disciples are about to face utter disaster, and so Jesus' farewell discourse is a spiritual disaster readiness kit. He is giving them in advance what they will need to faithfully endure this trial. Which brings us back to our question. How can you find comfort in an absent Savior? Trust him. Trust him. Specifically, trust three claims he makes about himself. First, he is your future with the Father. Trust that he is your future with the Father. Jesus makes this claim for himself and about himself in the first four verses. John 14, verses 1 to 4. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. After this extended conversation with his disciples and prayer for his disciples, the next thing Jesus would do is leave the building, walk across the Kidron Valley, and meet the disciple who is going to betray him, who would be there with soldiers and officers ready to take him into custody. Jesus is going to his last bitter agony. And his heart overflows with loving concern for his disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. Isn't that just like Jesus? Can you conceive of compassion greater than this? So in order to comfort his disciples, Jesus commands them and us to believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He puts himself on par with God. The same faith that you should place in God and only in God, Jesus is saying you should place in him. 
either Jesus is God the Son, one with the Father from all eternity, or else this command is both insane and idolatrous. Jesus' supreme antidote to the distress of soul that is about to fall on his disciples and that will fall on every Christian eventually is simple. Trust him. Believe him. Find the cure for your trouble in who he is and what he's done. There is no fear he can't counter. There is no wound he can't heal. Then Jesus directs our hearts to both his future and ours in verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Here Jesus looks ahead. And he looks ahead not only to his death, but also to his resurrection. Not only to his resurrection, but also to his ascension to heaven, and even beyond that, to his second coming. Jesus is going not just to the cross, but through the cross. He's going into the grave and out the other side. He's going to rise from death and return to his father's house to prepare a place for us. Here Jesus gives us a brief alluring glimpse of his whole work of salvation. So the question is, why do we need saving? Why do we need saving? Because every human being has rebelled against God, and as a result, we are all alienated from God. We are all estranged from God. And there is nothing we can do to effect a reconciliation. The problem of sin is too deep in us, and its consequences are too grave. What we deserve from God is eternal punishment. And because God is unstintingly good, that is what he promises to everyone who persists in sin. Yet, though we can do nothing to reconcile ourselves to God, God has done everything to reconcile us to him. Because God the Father loved us even when we had utterly rejected him, he sent his eternal son into the world as a man to achieve a perfect and permanent reunion. In these verses, Jesus is looking ahead to the cross and beyond the cross to comfort his disciples. They were about to witness what looked to all the world like a total failure. But Jesus is saying that his departure by way of his death and resurrection would be how he would pay for our sins, how he would satisfy God's wrath, how he would reconcile us to God forever. That's the good news of Christianity. If you don't trust in Jesus, the absence from your life that you should most lament is God. And the only way to be reconciled to God is, as Jesus says here, to believe in Jesus. So trust him, rely on him, Believe in him and you will gain God himself and an utterly secure future with him. Jesus tells us in verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. Why does he say many rooms? To assure us that in heaven is a sure, specific, and sufficient provision for every single believer. Believer. 
If you trust in Christ, there is a place reserved for you in God's own house. There is a room there that has your name on it. And what does it mean that Jesus is going there to prepare a place for us? It means that the whole sequence of events from Jesus' death to his ascension to heaven is in order to make heaven our home. In a city like Washington, D.C., housing can be a continual source of anxiety. Is the housing you need available? The big question, can you afford it? Not long ago, Kristen and I were in a grocery store in Northwest that had a rack of DC-themed greeting cards. One of them read, I want to grow old with you in our exorbitantly priced English basement apartment. (laughs) That is life in DC. If you're a Christian, your ultimate, your permanent, your utterly sufficient home is with God. In heaven, it's there, it's ready, it's waiting. And as verse 3 tells us, Jesus is not just the broker who obtains it. He is not just the designer who prepares it. He will personally escort you to it. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. One day Jesus' absence will end. We will be reunited to him and the reunion will last. In this passage, Jesus isn't just saying that if you believe in him, he will secure your future, although he will do that. But he won't just secure your future, he is your future. Union with Christ is our present Reunion with Christ is our future. To be with Jesus in God the Father's presence is the ultimate goal of your salvation, and it should be the ultimate desire of your heart. In his gripping book called Irresistible, NYU marketing professor Adam Alter observes that we in the West now live in what he calls a goal culture. Human beings have always set goals, but now more and more of us are setting more and more goals in more and more areas of our lives. We have phones and watches that count the number of steps we take each day in an effort to prompt us to greater fitness. And we want to walk a thousand more steps a day next month and a thousand more steps a day the month after that. We create financial plans for ourselves. We set targets for earning and saving and giving and investing this year and next year and for years to come. We make five-year plans and ten-year plans, some of us, not just for a whole business or for a multi-stage contract, but some of us even for our lives. We have five-year plans and ten-year plans. Setting goals can be helpful, and there are many reasons why you might set goals for yourself, but be careful. If you find yourself fixated on the goals you've set for yourself, it might be because you're trying to secure your own future. There are two problems with that. First, you can never fully secure your future. Second, Jesus already has. 
If you trust in Christ, the future that Jesus has secured for you is incomparably better than anything you could secure for yourself. There's nothing greater you could desire than to be with Jesus in God the Father's house forever. And you could ask for no better guarantee of that future than that Jesus is there in heaven right now preparing a place for you. Trust Christ. Be confident in the place he's providing for you. Long for it and wait for it patiently. Earlier this week, our two oldest children had the flu. They got it from Kristen, who had it before them. Thankfully, they're doing better. But young William and I, on the advice of Dr. Jamie Hedman, are taking Tamiflu as a preventive measure. What Jesus is giving us in this passage is preventive medicine. Jesus' disciples are about to be exposed to a shock to their spiritual immune systems that, if led to themselves, would utterly overwhelm them. And he's preparing them, not only for his imminent departure, but as we'll see in later chapters, he's preparing them for the trials and persecution that are going to characterize the whole time between his ascension and his return. So Jesus packs inexhaustible spiritual comfort into the tiny pill of these few verses. And he says, here, take this. You're going to need it. What do you dread when your mind wanders to worst-case scenarios? When your heart starts to sink into anxiety, what is it that troubles your spirit? Whatever your source of spiritual struggles, this is Jesus' prescription for a troubled heart. Here, take this. Jesus is your future with the Father. Jesus doesn't just secure our eternal happiness. He is our eternal happiness. Jesus doesn't just prepare heaven for us. He is what makes heaven, heaven. Look at verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. Put yourself into the shoes of Jesus' first disciples there in the upper room. Would you have known what he's talking about? Thomas did not. And that brings us to our next point. How can you find comfort in an absent savior? Trust that, point two, he is your access to the Father. We see this in verses five to 11. He is your access to the Father. Verse five, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Then Jesus responds in verses 6 and 7. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Now we see Jesus' strategy here. In verse 4, he sets the disciples a trap. They're not going to understand, and their misunderstanding will prompt a fuller revelation. In this whole conversation, it's as if Jesus is standing at a distance from his disciples, inviting them to come to him, and when they start to come to him, they trip and fall into a pool they couldn't see. And the pool is the deep waters of the Trinity. I am the way and the truth and the life. He doesn't just point the way, he is the way. He doesn't just tell the truth, he is the truth. He doesn't just grant life, he is the life. Jesus is the only way to God because he alone is truth and life. Jesus is the only way to God because he is God himself. He is not only the way, but also the goal. He's not only the path, he's the destination. As Augustine put it, remaining with the Father, he was the truth and life. Putting on flesh, he became the way. Jesus is the only religious leader in all of history who could truthfully point to God by pointing at himself. When he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, he isn't imposing some sort of arbitrary restriction on how people could find their way to God, as if, well, there would have been a whole lot of ways to God if Jesus hadn't gone and said that. It's not as if truth and life are something other than Jesus. Jesus is the way to the Father because he alone is the incarnate embodiment of the Father's nature. As Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The Son and the Father are distinct divine persons. But they share the single undivided divine essence. That's why Jesus goes on to say in verse 7, speaking of the Father... From now on, you do know him and have seen him. From now on doesn't mean from this moment I'm speaking to you. It means now that I've come to you in the flesh. John 1 verse 18 sheds light on our passage. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus is saying that he is truth incarnate. He is life incarnate. You cannot attain to ultimate truth without knowing him. You cannot gain eternal life without trusting him. It's, again, it's not that he just claims to have privileged access to this, like some sort of religious secret code where he can just share the code with you and then you get it too. No, he's saying it's me. He's saying I am what you're looking for and I am the only way to get it. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. You're always welcome here. I imagine that you might find Jesus' claims in these verses to be off-putting or even maybe offensive. Maybe you've thought of Jesus as merely a good teacher or a kind of social revolutionary and a model for progressive change. Maybe you're a Muslim and you consider Jesus to be a holy prophet, but not to be the eternal son of God. But friends, do you see how Jesus himself doesn't leave you any room 
for thinking of him as merely a good teacher or as only a prophet. Either Jesus is God incarnate or he's blaspheming. And if you don't agree with what Jesus is saying here about himself, if you don't think this represents the real Jesus, what's your evidence? What do you base your view of Jesus on if not on what he said to his disciples, who were eyewitnesses of his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is the only way to God because he's all we need in order to be reconciled to God. He is your access to the Father. In verse 8, the disciple Philip continues the theme of Jesus' disciples having no idea what he's talking about. After three years of constant time with Jesus, as we'll see, they still didn't truly know him. It is possible to be around Jesus, to hear Jesus' teachings, to consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and yet not truly know him. If you're used to thinking of Christianity as simply a box you tick on the census, or as a decision you made, a prayer you prayed when you were six years old, I hope this passage serves as a warning and a wake-up call. Let's look at verses 8 to 11. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, Philip does not yet have an adequate understanding of Jesus. But the desire he expresses in this question is exactly right. Show us the Father and it is enough for us. Seeing the Father is enough to satisfy our souls. And it will be enough to satisfy our souls throughout all eternity in the new creation. Philip has just failed to realize that he had already seen the Father in the person of his incarnate Son. So Jesus says in verses 9 and 10, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in my Father and the Father is in me? When Jesus says that he is in the Father and the Father is in him, he is saying that he and the Father, though distinct, are one. They each fully possess the single divine nature. There are not multiple gods here, but one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is also saying that he and the Father are personally distinct. He is not the Father, the Father is not Him. They're not interchangeable or indistinguishable. Instead, they are both one 
and also eternally related to one another as father and son. The son is not the father, but neither is he less than or of a different nature from the father. The next words Jesus says in verse 10 confirm this. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. I think Jesus is saying that his own words, his own teaching, the good work he's doing of revealing God to them, the Father himself is performing those works in him. The Son speaking is the Father acting. Jesus says something very similar in John chapter 5, verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Everything the Father does, the Son does too. And in everything the Son does, the Father is also working. That's why when you see the Son, you see the Father. The Father and the Son work inseparably because the Son eternally has His very being from the Father. When Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, He is not speaking metaphorically. He is uttering the mystery of the Trinity. In verse 11, Jesus continues, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is urging his disciples to take him at his word. The fact that he is the one teaching them these profound mysteries should be enough for them to accept them, to trust him. But he also has other evidence to back up his claims. When he says believe on account of the works themselves, he's referring to all the miracles that he's already done and that have been recorded earlier in the gospel. In chapter 2, he turned water into wine. In chapter 4, he healed a sick child by speaking. In chapter 5, he healed a man who'd been an invalid for decades. In chapter 6, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And then most dramatically of all, in chapter 11, he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. So if you don't believe what Jesus is saying, just because he's saying it, you should follow the signs. They all point to his identity as God incarnate. But notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say that seeing is believing. He says you should take him at his word. And if you don't, here's some evidence that might convince you to. This is crucial. It means that we, at a remove of 2,000 years, when Jesus is physically absent from us, we are at no loss, no disadvantage to faith by not seeing Jesus face to face. Not everyone who saw believed. John chapter 7 tells us his own family, his own brothers didn't believe in him at first. Then they did when they saw him raised from the dead. Later in John's gospel, toward the end, after Jesus' resurrection, the same Thomas who questioned Jesus in verse 5 
said that he wouldn't believe Jesus' resurrection unless he saw him and touched him. Then when he did see and touch, he confessed, my Lord and my God. Then in the very next verse, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Brothers and sisters, we are those to whom this greater blessing belongs. We are those who haven't seen Jesus face to face, but who have come to know him truly through the apostles' spirit-inspired testimony to him. We haven't met Jesus in the flesh, but we know him truly, and in knowing him truly, we have seen the Father. Jesus is your access to the Father. So much of our lives are spent craving access. We crave access to people with power, people with influence, people who can promote us and advance our careers. We crave access to people, whether friends or family, who will counsel us, bear our burdens, love us, comfort us, support us, provide for us. And so often, whether we're thinking in the realm of more personal relationships or professional advancement, so often those desires for access are frustrated. But friends, the access we most need is also the access we least deserve. The access that will determine our eternal destiny is an access that we have no credentials for. We can't get ourselves back to God. That's why Jesus' exclusive claims in these verses are such good news. Jesus is exclusive because Jesus is sufficient. He alone is our access to God because he's all the access we need. So this is a profoundly assuring passage. If you trust in Christ, you need nothing else. You're fully supplied fully sufficient. You have everything you need to secure your relationship with God now and to secure your future with him. Among evangelical Christians in the past 15 years or so, there's been a marked rise uh, among individual Christians and churches of using the language of being gospel-centered or Christ-centered. It's possible for that trend to get carried away you might see an article with the title, here are 15 Christ-centered breakfast recipes. <laughs> but the basic point is absolutely essential. Brothers and sisters, members of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, we should strive with all our might to make Christ the center, Christ the goal, Christ the laser-sharp focus of everything we do as a church. Without him, this church has no reason to exist. Without him, none of us have a good reason for covenanting together, for binding our lives to each other. Without him, we have no forgiveness of sins. Without him, we have no power to overcome sins. Without him, we have no assurance. Without him, we have no sure knowledge of God and of God's love for us. He's everything. Without him, we have nothing. So never lose sight of Christ. Never take your eyes off Christ. Never let anything drain away your love for Christ. Never let yourself grow tired of Christ. And if you do find yourself growing tired of Christ, 
then make that a focus of prayer. Make it a focus of conversation with other church members. Talk to one of the elders. If you just say, my, my focus on Christ seems to be slipping. My affection for Christ seems to be dimming. Don't let that turn into a pattern that hardens into a kind of downward slope of leaving Christ further and further behind. Fix your heart and mind and thoughts and words on Christ. As Jesus will pray a few chapters later in John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is your access to God. So what should you do with that access now? That brings us to our third point. He gives you power to glorify the Father. He gives you power to glorify the Father. That's another way to find comfort in an absent Savior. We see this in verses 12 to 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Notice who the promise of verse 12 applies to. It doesn't just apply to the apostles. It's whoever believes in me. This is a promise for every Christian. Now, how on earth... Can any of us do the same works Jesus did and even greater works? What are those greater works? The passage gives us a clue to both of those questions, both what these works are and how they are accomplished. Jesus says in verse 12, because I am going to the Father. After Jesus endures the humiliation of crucifixion, he will be resurrected, glorified, and exalted. After suffering the utter powerlessness of death, he will be installed in absolute power at God's right hand, the power that rightfully belongs to him as the divine son. So, Jesus going to the Father means more power available to his disciples. It means he will himself send the Holy Spirit who will empower us to live for him and bear witness to him. Jesus returning to the Father also means that instead of his active sphere of influence being limited to one place, one nation, it means he will put forth his power to convert people from all nations. In John 17, 20, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And in John 10, verse 16, Jesus foreshadows how the gospel will spread from Judea to all nations when he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is promising that when he ascends to heaven, he himself will act from heaven through us to bring people to himself. 
The conversion of people from all peoples and the transformed lives that will follow are the greater works Jesus is promising to do in this passage. And how will he do those works? In response to our prayers. Look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. When we do greater works than the Son himself did, who's doing them? The Son, Jesus, acting in and through us. When you pray for someone to be saved, and they are, who's saving them? It's Christ working from heaven by the power of his Spirit. When you pray for power to overcome sin and you make progress that you never have before, who's working in you? It's Christ by the power of the Spirit in answer to prayer. And the goal of all of this is the Father's glory. When the Son acts powerfully through His Spirit in response to our prayers, the Father's character and wisdom and power are put on display for all to see. The goal of our lives is the glory of God. And the goal of our prayers should be the glory of God. That's also crucial for understanding verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Did you know how Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name? The normal pattern in scripture is to pray to the Father in Jesus' name, but it is also good and right to pray to Jesus. Now, does verse 14 mean that literally everything we ever ask for in prayer will be granted? No. How do we know that? Because it wasn't even true of Jesus himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right after the conversation we're looking at, as the other Gospels tell us, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus asked that the cup would pass from him, but it wasn't possible. He had to drink that cup of wrath, and he did drink it. What about the Apostle Paul? Surely if anybody was ever going to get all their prayers answered, it would be Paul. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 9, talking about an affliction he had. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So this promise does not mean that everything we ever pray for will be answered in exactly those terms. What, what then does it mean? Well, I think 1 John 5.14 is helpful. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So I think when Jesus says in our passage, in my name, this qualification is implicit. To pray in Jesus' name is also to pray in accordance with God's will. It's to pray in accordance with Jesus' saving purposes. So what does that mean practically for our prayers? It means we should pray boldly. He promises to answer. 
We should pray submissively. We should align our prayers with God's revealed will and purposes and promises. And like Jesus prayed, we should say and mean when we pray, Father, if it is your will, please do this. We should pray enduringly. We should keep praying even when we don't see fruit. We should pray expectantly. We shouldn't pray and then forget about what we prayed for, but we should pray and then keep looking for an answer. We should pray fervently. Prayer is the means by which Christ will do greater works through us than what he did in his earthly life. There are so many situations in life when you might feel powerless. I feel powerless whenever a home repair requires greater skill than changing a light bulb. In a more serious vein, people experience a radical powerlessness whenever anyone in any kind of authority uses that authority to serve themselves instead of using it to equip and empower others to flourish. But do you know where we encounter an absolute lack of power? It's when it comes to reconciling ourselves to God. It's when it comes to remaking ourselves. We are absolutely unable to do that. We're absolutely unable to change our own hearts or other people's hearts. But that's right in the heart of Jesus' teaching on prayer in this passage. The greater works he promises to do through us and in response to our prayers are the works of conversion and sanctification. So when you feel powerless to change your own heart or for someone else to change, let that powerlessness drive you to the source of all power. When Christ died and rose again and ascended to the Father, he didn't leave us to ourselves. He didn't leave us to carry out his mission in our power. Instead, he promised power in response to prayer. He didn't just save us from sin and misery. He saved us for powerful and fruitful service. He didn't just save us from our wicked works. He saved us for good works that he himself would carry out in us all to the glory of God. How can you find comfort in an absent Savior? Trust that he gives you power to glorify the Father. <clears throat> the journalist Calvin Trillin once quipped, a person can only take so much comforting. Have you ever tried and failed to comfort someone? I know I have. The 19th century English pastor Charles Spurgeon could relate. Spurgeon reflected, trials depress the hearts of God's children for which the most tender ministry fails to afford consolation. And then it is most sweet for the failing comforter to remember the unfailing comforter and to commit the case of the sorrowful spirit into the divine hands. Whatever is troubling your heart today, Bring it to Christ. Don't let your trouble keep you from Christ. Instead, make your trouble drive you to Christ. 
Whatever burden weighs down your heart, Christ knows it. He endured it. And he bore it for you. And he is right now preparing your place with the Father. All praise to him who humbly came to bear our sorrow, sin, and shame, who lived to die, who died to rise, the all-sufficient sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that our hearts would not be troubled because we trust in Jesus and through him we know you. We're assured of your love and we're assured of being with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.